everyone. It's good to see you this morning. Um, We are glad that you decided to join us in worship this morning. I pray this service is an encouragement and blessing to you as we look to God's word to be uh, encouraged and strengthened and and transformed in our hearts into the image of Jesus Christ. Uh, Looking forward to the next few weeks as we anticipate our uh, Christmas season and just some things, I'm sure Pastor Dustin mentioned them, but a lot going on this month. Um, On uh, December 19th at 7 p.m., we're going to be having a candlelight service here at the church, which is what we always do. Um, that's always a great service. It's always a, a great service to invite someone to. It, it, it's an opportunity to maybe invite a neighbor or a family member to come and uh, be encouraged as we uh, take some time, set it aside to consider how Jesus came into the world and brought light and grace and forgiveness. And so uh, just encourage, I would encourage you to do that, to invite someone to be a part of that service Uh, I'd like to dismiss the children um, age 5 through 6th grade um, as you head downstairs uh, for Children's Church and to prepare um, for the song coming up in a few weeks. So this morning, uh, we're going to begin a a four-week study looking at the Christmas story from four songs or uh, four, um, four collections of praise that are written from Luke's gospel. On uh, Friday when I sent out the Facebook invitation, you know, for the live stream and the service and everything, I always include the link and this slide popped up and I had all sorts of people liking it and sharing it and all these things. And my thought was either you think that I'm going to be singing hymns (laughs) or maybe you just have Romans fatigue and you're ready for something a little different, but... um, so we're, we're going to take a short pause in our study in the book of Romans uh, as we consider this text again um, for this Christmas season. Now, much of what we're going to cover over the next four weeks is familiar ground. If you have uh, read God's Word, if you've been a part of the church for any length of time, um, it, it's something that you, you've probably heard, or maybe even if you've watched the uh, Snoopy Christmas special because they read from Luke's gospel. Uh, The danger when we are considering events that we are very familiar with, the danger is that we can forget. What I mean by that is not just forget, but tune out. Borrowing from the pen of Geoffrey Chaucer, who wrote Canterbury Tales, in the 14th century, familiarity breeds contempt. You know, sometimes we hear the stories so much, you're like, oh yeah, I know where you're going. I know what he's going to say. I know what happened. There were shepherds. There were angels. There was the birth of John the Baptist. There was the events of Mary receiving the news from the angel. You know, we get, we get all that and we think, I know those things. It's not that we willingly check out, but our mind goes to those familiar places, not leaning in as close to the text as we should, as we've heard these things before. But can I challenge you that sometimes the Lord speaks the loudest to us in moments like these? It's one of those things like if you have a photo in your home or a photo that you've taken that I mean, you can picture it right now. 
It's, it's like one of those things when you have something very familiar, you know what it says, you know how it reads, but when you look at it again, you can appreciate the finer details. You can kind of zoom in a little closer and, and pick up on things that maybe you missed the first, second, or hundredth time. You can see those things that maybe don't jump off the page if you were to give it that first glance. I hope if that's you this morning, you can appreciate a little closer the details of what's happening here in our text. Now, surrounding the story of Christmas is the idea of anticipation, of longing, of waiting. And I think it's supremely appropriate that the central vehicle of the Christmas story is pregnancy. Now, I've never been pregnant. Just full, full disclosure. Uh, but it's the idea of if you, you know, like when we were arri- uh, awaiting the arrival of our children, and I won't name their names because they're tired of me picking on them from the pulpit, but if, you, if you've been awaiting the arrival of a baby as the days get closer, there is, there's this anticipation, there's this longing, there's this waiting, the anxiousness of, okay, when's it going to be? What time will they arrive? All those things as it concerns the promise of the birth of a child. And what we're going to see this morning and over the next few weeks is that each person that sings a song in Luke's gospel is singing with the idea of anxious anticipation of what God is soon ready to do. And these are people that are leaning in to what God is bringing. Generations of people, the people of Israel, had waited and longed, and there was no arrival. They were not sure how God was going to fulfill His promises for a deliverer, for a Savior, for a King. And each generation came and went wondering, God, are you going to keep your word? And then... When it was time, at the right time, as Paul writes in Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time was complete. And that phrase, fullness of time, means full and to reach its end. That at the right time, God sent his son born of a woman. And so with Christmas, and the anticipation of Christmas, and the anticipation of the first Christmas, is this idea that God, in the right moment of human history, with all the seconds that have ticked off the clock, with all of the months and years and generations that came and went, that the events of this story occurred exactly at the moment that God had ordained for it to occur. That none of this was an accident. That none of this was too soon nor too late. 
that the people that waited and longed, wanting to hear from God, were not troubled that God had forgotten them. And that when he spoke, their response was joyous praise. Now, each person that we're going to see over the next few weeks burst forth with joy. Zacharias, Mary, the shepherds, and Simeon. And while they didn't quite understand how all the pieces were coming together, they understood that God was at work. And when God is at work, and we acknowledge that, He shines the light of His grace into our hearts. And He captures our attention. Much like how the Christmas lights in this room, if we were to turn the lights down and close the shades and it was to be dark, much like the Christmas lights that are around us that remind us that Jesus is the light of the world, we are reminded again that when light came in the form of a baby, it pushed out the darkness. And His light surrounds us with hope and joy. And we talk about this from time to time and, you know, we think through these things that Christmas can often be, and I I, I pray, is a a joyous time, a hope-filled time, a time of expectation and excitement and longing. But I just want to acknowledge that that in a room even of this size, that maybe Christmas this year isn't full of all of those good things. That for some of you, for a multitude of reasons, may not be looking forward to Christmas this year. But can I remind you, if that's you, or if it's not you, and you're looking forward to the excitement and joy and wonder of the season, that it's all about Jesus and promises that are fulfilled in the presence of a Savior King that desires to fill every heart that is broken and discouraged. And so what I'd like to do for the next few moments together is to draw our attention to Zacharias, one of these men that sings. We're in Luke chapter 1. And Luke, the writer of this gospel, and I, I love Luke's gospel because Luke was a, a doctor and a scientist. He was a man that was very detail-oriented. He was a man that did not see and experience Jesus with his own eyes, and so he spent time investigating digging deep into the claims of Jesus, listening to the people that saw Jesus. And he wrote this gospel, and he wrote the book of Acts together as a part one and a part two of the life and ministry of of Jesus and the birth of the body of Christ, the church that is us, and, and what God was doing as he set the world on fire. That he gives us insight into the people that are surrounding the nativity 
And he gives us an awareness of what was going on so that we can enter into this story of expectation and hope. Now, by the time we get to the end of Luke chapter 1, where where Zacharias sings this song beginning in verse 68, you have really all throughout this chapter the focus of what is going on in this narrative around Zacharias and his wife. Now, Mary is introduced kind of in the middle, but it starts with Zacharias and the promise of the birth of his son. And it concludes with the birth of the son and the song that erupts in his heart. But we see in the early verses of Luke's gospel that this man, Zacharias, was an ordinary country priest. He came from the tribe and, or, or the line of Abijah and his wife came from the priestly line of Aaron. In the time of King David, he divided up all of the priests into different groups. And so all through the lines of son and of all the sons that came and were born, Zacharias found himself from the line of Abijah. His job as a country priest was serving in the, the local community, but twice a year, these priests would be invited to come to the main temple in Jerusalem and serve God on behalf of the people in Jerusalem. They would also be asked to serve during the feasts and all those things. But really, every day in Zacharias' life, he's serving in the small places, in the mundane areas. And we see that it is now time for Zacharias to go to Jerusalem to serve in the temple. And while he is there serving in the temple, the angel Gabriel appears to him. And as Zacharias is serving and Gabriel appears, he announces that Zachariah and his wife would have a son. And they would name his son John. And Gabriel announces that many will rejoice at his birth. That his birth would be full of the purpose that this son would turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. As verse 17 indicates in chapter 1, this son would be a forerunner in the spirit and of the power of Elijah. Now, we need to stop right there. We need to think about this phrase in verse 17, that he is a forerunner to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. What we need to begin to see in the context around Zacharias is that there was 400 years of silence between when God spoke. The last time God spoke to his people was in the last book of the Old Testament through the prophet Malachi. And in that time, Israel had gone through crazy turnover. At the time of Malachi, which is around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, when they rebuilt the city of Jerusalem, The Persian Empire was in control of Israel. Shortly after the Persian Empire had gone to the wayside, the Greek Empire 
assumed the place of power. And it was during the Greek Empire and Alexander the Great. And it was, what was interesting is Alexander the Great was a student of Aristotle. And Aristotle was this person that wanted everyone to have this common unity. He, he taught that in his school of, of thought in, in the Greek Empire. That Alexander the Great brought Greek culture to the Middle East. And it found its way into Israel so that at the time of Jesus, the common language that was written was Greek, Koine Greek. And that's how the New Testament is written. And after the Greek empire rose to a place of prominence, another empire came after them, the the Romans. And that is the empire that's in control when Zacharias is in the temple. It's the same empire that's in control when Caesar calls for the census, and Mary and Joseph have to go from their home to Bethlehem. There's constant turnover and turmoil, and the people of God in the land of Israel have been frustrated that their land truly wasn't theirs. And then there was this silence. But now, as the angel spoke, their son John, born of Zacharias and Elizabeth, his wife, would turn the hearts of the people back to the Lord. Now, this statement that Gabriel makes is from the prophet Malachi, that last prophet. In fact, the final words of the prophet Malachi in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, these are the last two verses of the Old Testament. If you turn there, this is right before Matthew's gospel. We read in verses 5 and 6, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with the curse and in silence. Nothing. No more prophets. No more Old Testament written. And the next time that God chooses to speak, he picks up from those very last words in the Old Testament. And he speaks promise and truth to Zechariah and say, listen, I'm not done. And I haven't forgotten. And what is what I am setting the stage for through your son that will be born will bring my people back to me. Zacharias' response, when you read in Luke chapter 1, is of unbelief. He doubted. He and his wife were both advanced in years, beyond childbearing years. Kind of like Abraham and his wife when the angel of the Lord appeared to them and said, when I come back next year, you're going to have a child. And they're like, there's no way that's going to happen. This is what's happening. And when we see how God keeps His Word through His promises, even when it seems like we wait forever, 
we are reminded that a season like this, Christmas, shows us that even in the darkness of winter, God's promises ring true. There's something else that we need to see about Zacharias. When he didn't believe the message of the angel, something happened to him. He was stricken to not be able to talk for nine months because he doubted. Now, some of you out there might be praying for a similar kind of miracle in your situation. But you fast forward, it took some of you a little while to get that one. Uh, You fast forward to nine months later. John is born. Zacharias was silent for nine months while his wife was pregnant, while everyone in the community watched, while they wondered what was going on. Here is Zacharias, this priest that served in the common places that knew his people, quiet, couldn't talk. His tongue was tied. When it came to naming the boy, likely in the culture, they would have thought that he would have been named after his father. He wasn't. Zacharias wrote down his name on a tablet to confirm that this is who he should be called. And it's when he wrote his name down that his tongue was loosed in verse 64. And the next thing he does after nine months of anticipation is sing God's praise. The song that he sings speaks of the gift of his son. It also speaks of the the gift of the promise of the one to come after. And we're going to talk more about that next week. That the forerunner, this son named John, is preparing for something greater. Now John was certainly a gift to Israel. He wouldn't be received as a gift, though. As you read in the Gospels, we all know John the Baptist's fate. His head was cut off because of his obedience to God. But he prepared the people to meet the Savior, the Messiah, the Promised One. But John even though he was a gift to Israel, always understood that there was a greater gift coming. That of Jesus. We see all throughout the Gospels, especially in Mark chapter 1, that as Jesus came to John to be baptized, John understood. He's like, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus permitted him to. And and it was a sign of saying, listen, we all know what God is doing. The Father is doing. And so let's honor this plan that the Father has to redeem His people. John knew his place. Zacharias knew that at the miraculous coming of John, that God was returning to redeem his people after 400 years of silence. God is bursting through the darkness. 
His only response is to sing. Now, when we sing, us, especially this time of year, often very familiar songs, my question to you is, when was the last time that you were caught up into the truths that you were singing? You know, the, okay, I know this song. Kind of like hum our way through it. Or, oh, this is a new song. I don't know. But to, to stop and, and consider the depth of the truths that we are crying out to God. The theology the acknowledgement of who we are in the presence of a holy God. That true worship lifts the attention of the worshiper out of the mundane into the heavenly places. It gets our attention off of this to this. To the presence of God, the glory of God, the power of God, where He is seated. And that through worship, through the heartfelt cries of our hearts to a holy and majestic God, God assures the heart that even in the face of present circumstances, He is good and faithful. Listen, what we do in the first part of our service matters to God and to us. And so the song begins in verse 67. It's really the the context of what the song is going to be. We read, And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying. Here, the priest becomes the prophet. The Holy Spirit fills him takes control of his heart. I hope you know what John, or Luke is trying to connect with in Zacharias' heart. I, I, I hope that you've had those moments where, listen, we have the Holy Spirit as believers in Jesus Christ. He indwells us. But those moments in life when you are full of the Holy Spirit and, and God takes over. Do you ever have those, those moments where you're just like, God, I don't know where that came from, but I'm so thankful that you were in me. You know, it might be the mountaintop experience, and we all want to live on the mountain forever, but you know, there's times when God seems so clear to us, so close to us, His truth surrounding us. Zacharias is full of the Spirit, and God is silent no more. And in this song, he utters some 16 different Old Testament promises that were given. Everything that that Zacharias sung came from what he knew to be true in God's Word. Do you see that connection? That our praise to God needs to be connected with what we know to be true about Him. That when we start seeing how God has shown Himself to us and fulfilled that, it actually increases our worship, our ability to to sing God's praises. 
And that is why it is so important for you that before you ever get here on a Sunday morning, that you are spending time with God and His Word to remind yourself of His promises, His truths that never change. And that when we gather here, it's just the overflow of praise for what we know to be true. He, be, he begins this song in verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Now, there was a Latin translation of the Bible that came far later in recorded history. It's called the Vulgate. And they begin, verse 68, with this word, Benedictus. And that's where we get the name for this song that Zacharias sings, the Benedictus. Now, why does this man bless the Lord? Like, what are the grounds? What is causing his heart to overflow with joy and thankfulness for the promise of everything that God had said? And now it's coming true right before his very eyes. You know, like as a priest, he would have heard all the stories. He would have known all the stories. He would have understood what the Old Testament said. And he's waiting and waiting and waiting. And now it's here. And he's like, oh my word, it's finally here. My dad never saw it. My granddad never saw it. His granddad never saw it. All the priests were waiting and never saw. And now it's here and his heart is overflowing. And he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited us. Now this phrase, He has visited us, begins the song and ends the song. If you, if you look further down in verse 78, We read, because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. This phrase, He has visited us, sandwiches the song and it declares that God has and will visit. Do you see how it's written here? God has visited us. He doesn't sing that God will later visit us. Remember, John is the first one born. But he's not the Savior. He's not God's Son. Zacharias knows this, and we'll talk about that next week in Mary's song. But as the Son, His Son is born, He knows that God has already visited. There's the certain expectation that God is at work. Verses 68 and 78 declare that God has and will visit. And this phrase, visit, means to look after. That God does not take a hands-off approach with His creation. I hope you know that. That God does not take a hands-off approach, not just with creation, but with you. With the world that you're living in, your life. But think about this statement that he cries out, that God visits us. Listen, the promise of Christmas is the reality that God did what we could not do. Left of ourselves, we would try to build a ladder to heaven. We can't do it. We can't reach God. 
we could not get to God as if we could ascend to his level of glory and majesty. So what did God do? He came to us. As John says in John chapter 1, when Jesus came to the earth, he made his home here. He abides with us. That Jesus has visited us. The perfect son, leaving heaven's splendor, the holiness inhabits the broken. And as Zacharias continues this song in verse 69, he cries out and he says that he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. He has accomplished redemption as he has raised up a horn of salvation. Now the horn and this time and in Old Testament times was a sign of strength. Like think of a horn on an animal, that kind of horn, like that powerful uh, piece of the, the animal that is the sign of strength and, and all those things that goes with it. This horn of strength is tied into a promise that God had made. in the house of David, his servant. Zacharias' song is rooted in what he knew to be true about the promises that God had made through a man named David who was king. And in this promise, this covenant that he made with David, God promised that through David's line, the eternal king would come. The horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. God had made this promise to establish His throne forever. And this horn's ministry would be twofold. First, it it would be for redemption. Redemption means to ransom away God's people with the blood of Jesus. To buy back, to pay for those who are on the sin or that are enslaved to sin. The second ministry that the horn would bring is deliverance. It's deliverance. What did Jesus do in delivering us from all the earthly enemies that were Israel's and God's? And finally, in Revelation 19, when Jesus returns again, all of the enemies of God are vanquished forever. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy towards our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Now, Zacharias is understanding a twofold ministry of the horn of salvation that is promised to come through the King, Jesus, who is the one that his son will prepare the way for. That when this King comes, yes, there is spiritual deliverance, and yes, too, there was deliverance from the enemies of Israel. All those nations that had 
controlled Israel, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. Zacharias knows that there is a coming deliverance. And Israel will be set free. From the prophets of old, God will show mercy towards our fathers, that their bondage will be eternally loosed, and God's kingdom will be set up and stand forever. And in verses 72 through 75, it's all built on God remembering his covenants, his holy covenant, not just the Davidic covenant, but as we're going to see, the Abrahamic covenant. If you look, you see here in verse 73 that God remembered the oath which he swore to Abraham. So Zacharias remembers the the covenant to David, but he also goes further back to the first covenant, the first promise. And he says, remember Abraham, that through Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And now as the horn of salvation is coming, God is stepping into the darkness. God is keeping His promise. It's not just for a few people, but it's for everyone. That as light shines into the darkness, as we celebrate the hope of Christmas, as we consider the events of everything that surrounds the nativity, it's the promise to us that God is not just for us, but God has come into the world for them. And that we go with the hope of the gospel that God keeps His covenant promises. And Zechariah draws our attention that God will never be too late. Listen, if you're anxious this morning, if you're waiting, if there are things that you know that are coming soon, and you're not sure of how it's all going to work out, all the details. This season is for you to remind you that God steps in at the right time. And that His promises stand forever. At the closing of the song, the song shifts from God's promises to praising God for the ministry of His Son. In verses 76 and following, he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give to His people the knowledge of salvation. This Son born will prepare the way. He links His Son with the ministry of Elijah in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 40, verse 3, in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, a prophet like Elijah will go and prepare the way for the Lord. And if you can just kind of picture with me, like in that time, in that season, when a king would come, people would go out and, and they would prepare the path for the king. Because as the king would come, the roads are not like ours, even in Pennsylvania, right? I know, potholes everywhere. But, you know, like rocks and boulders and all the things that would encompass a dirt road. And and as a king would come and enter a land, people would go on before and prepare the way, clear out all the stones to make the path straight. 
And John, in his ministry as a forerunner, is preparing the path to ready the hearts so that when the King comes, they are ready. How does he ready the hearts? Zacharias knows to give to his people the knowledge of salvation. The knowledge of salvation. So what's the knowledge of salvation? By the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. You see that? You might want to underline those words. That salvation is the message of forgiveness of sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God. I don't know if you're ready to jump out of your seats and sing God's praises, but I hope you are. Listen, salvation is rooted in God's ability to visit us, that he visits us. Why does God visit us? Because we can't go to him. He has to come to us. And when he comes to us, what does he do? He forgives us. That doesn't make sense to me. The whole Christmas story is not something that we can dream up. It's the story of God's tender mercy coming to us, visiting us, rescuing us, forgiving us. And God removes our sin through His Son. God casts those sins into the sea. When you can't forget your sin, when someone else reminds you of your sins, Christmas reminds us that God is the one who forgives sin, that He is the one who saves us through the work of His Son. It's not up to us. It's not dependent on us. There is nothing that we can do. Everything surrounding the grace that is given is rooted in God visiting us. What does Zechariah say as he closes this song? I love it. To shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. Listen. the sunrise from on high will visit us. For 400 years for Zacharias, it was dark. And in the night sky, we look to the promise of the day that the sun is born. And at his presence, the darkness flees. When the sun rises... 
Not the glowing ball in the sky. But when the sun rises, He comes with healing in His wings. Go back with me to Malachi. That last book in the Old Testament. In Malachi chapter 4, that last chapter in that last book, we read in verse 2 of Malachi chapter 4, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. I haven't seen this personally. But when you release a calf that's been penned up, boom, it's gone. Like, I, I don't want to be a rodeo person. You know, you, you get a bull in, in, in the cage and, you know, irritate him to all end, open the gate. What does he do? Everywhere. Right? The closest I get is when, like, my dog comes home or we come home and my dog's home and we, you know, when we crated her, we'd let her out of the crate and she would zip around the house and burn off all of her energy in about 30 seconds. What does the prophet Malachi say? When the sun comes, we're going to be like calves that are jumping around after being caged up because when the sun comes, we are set free. Do you see that? When the sun comes, we are set free. And when we are set free, we are able to live the way that God wants us to live because He has forgiven us of our sins and we are restored to Him. And we don't have to find anymore any way on our own to try to reach God. God has reached down to us. And the sun shines upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. The promise of Christmas is that the Lord is with us. And though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, God is with us. Not that we are with Him. He is with us. And so as we close, I want to ask you, in the light of what God has done through the season of Christmas for you, what song will you sing to Him? Are you able to be filled with joy because the sun is shining today? In the next few moments, we're going to prepare for the Lord's table. And I just want to draw our attention back to what Zacharias sings when he says that Jesus is the horn of our salvation. That today... This mighty horn of salvation is able to save completely those who come to God through Him. Whoever you are, whatever you have done, no matter how heinous you think your sin is, Jesus, the horn of salvation, can save us completely and eternally. And for us that know that saving gospel, that celebrate the table that the Lord gave us, 
and the giving of His body and the shedding of His blood, we, we rejoice in the power of God because it is the gospel that it is our greatest joy. And we agree with Paul. And I had to throw this in here, going back to Romans chapter 1. Because it is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes, first the Jew and then the Gentile. Let's pray.